everyone up in those high peaks always belongs to someone. It's someone's kid, someone's son, someone's daughter, someone's spouse. And you always think... ourselves what goes through the survivors minds the minds of the loved ones that are back at home what occurs to them and what occurs to anyone in those situations and also I wanted to toss this in this just to 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 credit and to props and to mention to my producers this was at their wedding and one of my producer's twin sister, she sang this, so. I've died every day waiting for you. Darling, don't be afraid. I have loved you for a thousand years. I love you for a thousand Last episode, I touched on K2. What I've done a lot of research and a lot of studying on, and I will tell anyone, I believe is the steepest and most dangerous mountain on Earth. But that is definitely, definitely not to take away from anything else. Any other climbers anywhere. On Nanga Parbat, on Everest, on Mount Rainier, on at any of the other great peaks on this, in this beautiful planet there everywhere you go there's there's bound to be tragedies there a lot of people haven't heard of them because they don't they're not publicized and no one really talks about them but they all have stories and they all have great details and great memories and I know last one I mentioned K2 and got into K2 a lot, but this one I'm going to go, I'm going to go across the area and go to the biggest one, the biggest mountain on earth, Everest. And there's a lot, there's a lot, a lot of facts and a lot of stories and a lot of legends to touch on what happened in Everest, different stories, what we think could have happened, what actually did happen, what led to the, to the decisions that were made. What happened to the climbers? It's a very interesting story, but it's very sad. And I'm bringing this up like I did last episode. In their memory, and honor their memory, and honor their adventure. And they're striving to do something that everything and everyone said couldn't be done. And they push themselves. They were athletes, and they're heroes. And they push themselves beyond, beyond what they recognized could be reason. And they just push themselves. And what's to be said for doing something 
because you want to do it or you think you can do it and pushing yourself to do it when everyone else says you can't. Um, I well know from a connection that I'm not going to get into, but I well know that I, this is in my nature, I'm going to do something mostly because people tell me that I can't do it, that I can't be that I'm, that I'm not physically able to do it. I will show them and I will do it because of that. Because I feel able to do it and strong enough to it. So when I see that in other people overcoming these obstacles that, heck, I'm, I'm not even able to do, I envy that strength in them. I envy that adventure and that ability in them. Whether or not, like I said last episode, whether or not I think Everest is becoming the, the over-traveled peak of the world and more adventure can be found on K2 and other mountains. Now... But a lot of this, like I said, is in honor of their memory. And I go back to 1996, speaking of Everest. Rob Hall, on May 23rd, at 4.43 in the morning, from the Hillary Step, he contacted Base Camp, telling Base Base Camp to contact his wife. Sleep well, my sweetheart, he said. Please don't worry too much. That was the last thing he ever said. That anyone ever heard from him. Anyone ever heard contact from him. He was found dead. Sorry, I got the date wrong. He's found dead on May 23rd. There's a lot of legends and a lot of stories about what happened in 1996 on Mount Everest. John Krakauer was on the expedition that was... He was John Krakauer's on Rob Hall's expedition. He was part of Rob Hall's team. And in Krakauer's, in Krakauer's book, Into Thin Air, you can read the story of what happened. There was also an IMAX film expedition that was on the mountain at the time that was shooting. Um, David Brashears was one of the leaders of the expedition. Ed Veasters was also a part of it. And it was shooting a movie for IMAX on the mountain at the time. So that quote that I just read to you when Rob was contacting his wife from the mountain through base camp, you actually hear Rob's voice in the movie. And it's it's not scary, but it's chilling. And I mean, maybe it's different for different people, but I've seen the movie several times. And I love that movie. Love the IMAX movie Everest. Um, the IMAX movie Everest, not the new one with Jake Gyllenhaal, which is not to say that it was a bad movie. That wasn't. But I love, love the IMAX Everest movie. It was, it's so awesome. And it's so inspiring and so touching to hear all these stories. And so in Krakauer's book, which I think criticized Krakauer and, and Scott Fisher and Doug Hansen, Andy Harris, Rob Hall, all the all the great guys that were on the mountain. Criticize them if you wish. I look at it a different way. I tend to see that they were all heroes for 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 pushing themselves beyond what everyone said couldn't be done. And they did it because they thought they could do it. And they said, Oh yeah, I can do it and here's and here's me doing it. So that's 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 to be envied to have the strength to overcome something even within yourself and within something else people put on you and 
there's a lot of stories about it. And as Krakauer writes in the introduction to Into Thin Air, even attempting to climb the world's highest mountain is intrinsically an irrational act, a triumph over, of desire over sensibility. It is one of the places in the world where everything can be done correctly, but with a flap of butterfly's wings, you could lose your life. And a lot of this research I'm done doing just from memory. A lot of this, a lot of the stuff from this episode and last 214 to this one, is just from memory and just from from Krakauer's book and from the Grunge, the Grunge website, thegrunge.com, and no, not the Grunge, Grunge.com, and Wikipedia and other sources. But a lot of it, like I said, a lot of it's from memory. And that's not just the case with Everest. That's the case with all mountains. Everything can look perfect, beyond perfect, and with the with the snap of a finger or a flap of butterflies, wise way, butterflies' wings, like Krakauer just said, things can change horribly wrong, really fast. Unfortunately, everything wasn't done correctly during the summit of Mount Everest on May tenth, nineteen ninety six, with the tour tourism industry at Mount Everest seeing a boom. There is a belief among some mountaineers that it was only a matter of time before a tragedy occurred on the mountain. Although the 1996 tragedy was the worst, inc was worst incident in the history of Everest at the time, it was supplanted by a 2014 avalanche which claimed the lives of 13 people. Many considered summit fever, that's when you get high enough or when you get high enough up a peak to see the summit where you where you think you can see the summit and it fills you with this addictive joy and this addictive push to want to get there by any means necessary many consider summit fever to be partly responsible for the 96 disaster especially since several other climbers were willing to do whatever it took to get to the top and many have felt pressured to continue since others were doing so. And with the increasing bottlenecks at Everest, care should be taken to ensure that a tragedy like the one in 96 doesn't occur. This is what, the, what I'm going to get into as best as I can, the tragic story of 96. Between 50 and 60 million years ago, the highest point in the world, Sagamartha, also known as Chongolongma, or Mount Everest, was created when the Indian and Eurasian tectonic plates collided, and the forces that pushed the rocks together are still going strong, as it is in the Karakoram where K2 is. Every year, Everest summit rises by a quarter of an inch. So it's still going up. The first recorded people to climb Mount Everest were New Zealand mountaineers Edmund Hillary and Nepalese Indian Sherpa Tenzing Norgay on May 29, 1953. However, according to National Geographic, despite the fact that they simultaneously reached the summit, Hillary was knighted for the endeavor while Norgay only received an honorary medal. That you'll never get me to understand. High Adventure Expedition notes 
that there have been over 5,000 people to successfully climb Everest. Two Nepali Sherpa mountaineers, Lakpa Tenzing Sherpa and Purba Tashi Sherpa, jointly held the record for summoning Mount Everest more than any other person, having each climbed the mountain 21 times. However, climbing Mount Everest is an incredibly, incredibly difficult feat. Well, no kidding. And it's even extremely stressful and difficult for the most ch for even the most experienced mountaineers. And due to weather conditions, there's an extremely limited climbing season. One of the biggest dangers is the high altitude, and the area on Everest above 26,000 feet is known as a dead zone. The area, any area on any mountain, K22 above 26,000 feet is called a death zone. That's where the oxygen is so thin that your body can't inhale enough. You can't get enough oxygen into your body and into the bloodstream. Spending too long in the death zone can cause altitude sickness, sickness and even brain swelling. After Norgay and Hillary summited Mount Everest, the numbers of climbers saw an exponential increase between 1953 and the 1980s, less than 300 people have reached the summit, but in the 1990s alone, almost 900 people climbed the mountain. In the 21st century, this number continued to swell. Overall, roughly 90% of the attempted climbs have been successful. Thoughtco writes that in the 1990s, Climbing Mount Everest turned into a multi-million dollar industry. Several companies advertised themselves as able to help the most, as able to help themselves. Wait, wait, I completely, I started reading that and I went back and I read it out of context, sorry. Several companies advertised themselves as able to help even the most amateur climber reach the top of Everest. So, amateur that some climbers had never even been on a mountain before by their own admission. It wasn't cheap, costing between $30,000 and $65,000 per climber. But the climbers felt that if they paid the $65,000 that they were going to be taken to the top and back safely for that money. According to the Washington Post, more and more crowds of people on Everest often posed a problem. Sometimes often posed a problem. It would seemingly always pose a problem. I mean, at least I would think it would always pose a problem. Sometimes preventing swift, sometimes preventing swift evacuations and, and cramming climbers together on perilous slopes. In 2003, Edmund Hillary himself told Time Magazine, the commercialized trips and the overcrowding were what caused the tragedy in 96. It was inevitable, he says. I've been forecasting a disaster of that nature for some time, and it will happen again. In March of 96, there were several groups getting ready to summit Everest. Most of the groups were ascending from the, ne from the Nepalese side of the mountain, while other groups were groups were climbing from the Tibetan side.
there were two two of the largest guiding groups coming in from the, and the page just jumped I was reading from my notes which kept saying refer back to the page and the page just spontaneously jumped so I gotta find it here there we go two of the largest guided groups coming in from the Nepalese side were Rob Hall's adventure consultants and Mountain Madness by Scott Fisher Anatoly Bukriv and Neil Beidelman was also part of the Mountain Madness team. Adventure consultants included eight clients and several Sherpa climbing guides, and Mountain Madness had seven clients and eight Sherpa climbing guides. Krakauer, John Krakauer, who later went on to write Into Thin Air, had been part of Hall's exp expedition team. In mid-April, Climbers started the, the acclimatization process, which involved spending longer and longer intervals in higher altitudes before returning back to base camp. According to ThoughtCo, over the course of the month, climbers made their way to Camp 3, which was next to the Lhotse Face, a sheer wall of glacial ice at 24,000 feet. On May 9th, the groups were scheduled to climb up to Camp 4, the highest camp at 26,000 feet. But, according to Mountain Zone, that day, Chen Yunnan, who was part of, was part of Gao Mingho's Taiwanese team, made the mistake of leaving his tent without attaching his boots and necessary spikes for climbing ice. As a result, he fell down the Lhotse face into a crevasse. Chen was quickly pulled up from the crevasse and, initially, did not complain of pain and seemed to have suffered no serious injuries, but the fall likely caused severe internal damage. As the morning progressed, it became clear to Chen that he wasn't feeling well, so he told Gao that he'd catch up with the group after resting for, few, for a few more hours. Instead of resting, Chen decided to climb down from Camp 3 and was in a debil debilitated state when he was found by Sherpas coming down from the South Call Pass. Chen was carried, a carried a further 1,000 feet down the mountain before he suddenly died. Even then, members of the IMAX team climbing up from Camp 2 hoping to revive him, hope had hoped to revive, revive him, but it was too late. Very, very heartbreaking and sad. On the way to Camp 4, almost everyone except for a handful of elite climbers needed to use oxygen to keep going. Camp 4 lies at the beginning of the death zone, where the oxygen level is one-third that of sea level. National Geographic had reported that on the way up, the Adventure consult Consultants and Mountain Madness teams actually saw the IMAX team headed in the opposite direction. The IMAX team had detailed that, had decided that since the weather was okay, but not great, it was better to head back to Camp, th camp 2 and wait for better conditions. The IMAX team um, almost started to doubt themselves, but the experienced climbers in the group had seen summit fever before. If eight climbers headed up, 
they pull ten more with them. The mood is so the mood is so and so's so and so's going today. Well, we should be going too. But on Everest, you've got to make your own decisions. Was that was said? The other group started started driving at Camp Four throughout May 9th, and although a storm came by during the afternoon, by evening the weather seemed to have cleared enough for the climb to continue. Mountain Madness Adventure Consultants and Gao's Taiwanese expedition set out at midnight on May 10th. According to ThoughtCo, every climber was given two spare bottles of oxygen for their climb. They would usually, maybe not always the case, but the two spare bottles, they would usually split that. One bottle for the way up and one bottle for the way down. They would carry both bottles with them and they would leave the second bottle at a part, a portion of the mountain where they could pick it back up, where they could pick it up on the way down. So they didn't have to carry the full load of both bottles all the way up. They only had to carry one. So, I mean, while you wouldn't want to have any extra loads beyond more than what you could carry on your back to begin with, not carrying two when you didn't need to, I guess kind of makes sense. So they would they would stick the second bottle in the snow near a part of the peak near the top where they could grab it on the way down. And that was the thinking. However, all of the oxygen was going to run out by 5 in the afternoon. So the climbers had to get down as quickly as possible once they summited. Unfortunately, the groups were affected by several delays. Although there had been been a plan for some of the Sherpas to go ahead and set up lines of rope to help guide climbers through some of the more steep parts of the mountain, the fixed rope lines were not installed in advance. Setting up the ropes took an additional hour, and many climbers were very slow due to their inexperience. According to Krakauer, at base camp, Adventure Consultants World Leader Rob Hall had had determined that climbers should turn around by either 1 p.m. or 2 p.m., regardless of whether they'd summited or not. However, a hard deadline was never set, and by 11 a.m., the summit was still three hours away. At 11.30 a.m., three of the climbers from the Adventure Consultants team turned their backs on the summit and decided to head back down the mountain. In the end, they seemed to make the better choice compared to all the others. The first batch of climbers was able to make it to the summit around 1 p.m., but people were summiting well past the 2 p.m. turnaround time. According to ThoughtCo, Mountain Madness leader Rob, Rob Mountain Madness, sorry, Mountain Madness leader Scott Fisher didn't also didn't enforce a turnaround time and allowed his clients to stay on the summit past 3 p.m. Mountain Zone recalls notes that Gao also summited around 3 p.m. Fisher ended up being the last of his group to summit and no one questioned him because he was the leader he was the leader and an experienced Everest climber but even at that point some of the climbers noted that Fisher wasn't looking too great. 
That's another thing that has been criticized about climbing mountains. Not just Everest, but any mountain. Is that people would not, the climbers and people would not question leaders. Using the, using Rob Hall and Scott Fisher in this example, because that's the only two I can think of for right away right now that's right in front of me. People would not question the leaders, because one, because they were leaders and they, they were experienced. So people would not question them. And that would be, and that would backfire greatly on them. Adventure consultants leader Rob Hall and client Doug Hansen also ignored the turnaround time and didn't make it to the top of Mount Everest until 4 p.m. By that point, dark clouds had already appeared and snow was beginning to fall. This was, this was especially treacherous since it meant that their, that their tracks which they needed, which they needed in order to guide their way back down, would be covered. As Krakauer notes, the summit was really only the halfway point. Well, duh, anyone could tell you that. According to sky, according to the according to the sky above us, this was Hanson's second attempt to scale Everest, and it's possible that Hall was aware that Hansen had spent his life savings on Hall's Everest expeditions. So may so he may have been swayed by Hansen's by Hansen not being not to firmly stick to the 2 p.m. turnaround time. The storm had started coming in around 3:30, and by 6 p.m. it was a full-fledged blizzard with gale force winds. At a time when climbers were still trying to get down the mountain, 17 climbers were caught up on the mountain as the blizzard roared around them, and their oxygen supplies decreased. By 10 p.m., only half of the climbers who left that morning made it back. Thoughtco writes that a group of climbers was able to make their way down the mountain, where they also found Beck Weathers. Weathers had been part of Hall's Adventure Consultants, but after having been struck by temporary blindness, he becomes stranded at 27,000 feet. According to the Guardian, the site The Guardian, Weathers had not had undergone a radial keratotomy before his Everest expedition. Everest expedition, Everest excursion. In order to fix his short-sightedness, once he got that high, that high up, though. His adapted corneas changed shape, leaving him half-blind in the darkness. And although the bright sunlight helped close his helped close his iris, in the process, Weathers scratched his right eye with an eye crystal, leaving him able to see, but with no depth perception. Hall refused to allow Weathers to summon, and had assured him that he would accompany him down on his return. However, Hall never returned. The group was 200 feet away from Camp 4, but the storm made it difficult to see. So the group, now made up of Weathers, Beitelman, Groom, Yasuko Namba, Sandy Pittman, Charlotte Fox, Lene Gamelgaard, Martin, Adam, Martin Adams, Clev Schoening, decided to wait out the storm. Hall and Hansen found themselves stranded at the Hillary Step during the blizzard. According to Na National Geographic, Hansen had collapsed, unable to go on, 
and Hall decided to stay with him. Hall got in touch with base camp, explaining the situation. And although his fellow his fellow guide Guy Guy Cotter pleaded with his old friend to leave Hanson behind and get down to the south summit, if only to retrieve the oxygen bottles, so he could start breathing gas and gain the strength to aid his client, Hall refused to leave Doug Hanson alone. Thotco writes that they made that they made attempts to descend. But during one of their unsuccessful attempts, Hansen died. It's unclear what happened, since Hall communicated over the radio. Since what Hall communicated over the radio was Doug was gone, and because Hansen's body was, and just the pages keep jump, my notes keep jumping here. God bless digital stuff. And because Hansen's body was never found, no one knows if he succumbed to hypothermia or if he fell to his death. Paul, unfortunately, also died. But severe weather kept rescuers from getting to Hall's body. It would take another 12 days before it was found by the IMAX team during their climb. The day after Hansen died, Gao and Fisher were found 1,200 feet above Camp 4 by a group of Sherpas. Gao was suffering from severe frostbite, while Fisher was unresponsive and barely breathing. Gao was guided down, but the Sherpas left Fisher behind, believing that he was beyond hope. By the time Bukreev, one of Fisher's guides, went up to find Fisher, he had already died. Although Beck Weathers had been found by the other guides when the storm cleared and they start and they started heading for Camp 4. Weathers was one of the three who was too incapacitated to move. Help was sent for the stranded climbers, but Bu- but Bucreve was only able to find to help Fox and Pittman back. Since another storm had made its way over, Weathers and Namba were left behind. According to the Guardian, the next morning they were found and examined by a Canadian doctor, Stuart Hutchinson. Both were declared barely alive and left for dead. But around four in the afternoon, Weathers, somehow coming out of his hypothermic coma, while the news of his death was released, he stumbled under his own power back to camp. Everyone was stunned. Though his face was blackened with frostbite and his limbs were li- his limbs were likely never going to be the same again, Beck was walking and talking. The following morning, the climbers thought that Weathers had died during the night and almost left him again. Luckily, Weathers woke, Weathers woke up in the nick of time and under his own power, made his way back to the camp, as I've just said. There is a lot of stories and a lot of horrors about what goes on, what happened in 96, what happened on Everest. There is a lot of horrors about this, and I apologize for bringing it up and bringing it out again. This is just a lot of horrors, and it's very, very touching to see what these people went through and to learn... Beck is amazing. 
the the thing that overcame Beck Weathers and the things that were forcing him down, how he got up somehow, how he managed to get up under his own power and meander his way back into camp is incredible. How he was still alive is beyond mention. It's so stunning and so incredible. And all this is incredible, just, just flummoxing, really amazing. And it's really cool. So thank you all so much for listening. Thank you all for sticking around with me as long as you all have. Stick around for a bit more in the end here. Want to check out the best travel vlogger and videos anywhere? Go to Atlantic City, Disney, Six Flags, all along the Atlantic City boardwalk, and go to Vegas. Check out the New York channel. N-U-Y-A-W-K on YouTube. You will be thoroughly impressed and thoroughly entertained. You will love every second of what you're seeing. Go to YouTube and check out N-U-Y-A-W-K. You'll love what you're seeing. You'll enjoy every second of it. Want to check out the best podcast and best YouTube channel out there? True, true friends of this podcast? Check out Fantastic Cruising over on Apple Podcasts and all your favorite podcasting devices and services. Give them a five-star review. Head on over to YouTube. Look up Fantastic Studios. Give them a five-star review and give them comments. They'll love that to death. They are the greatest podcast out there. Give them a shout-out. Want to check out the most amazing adventure in sports and athletic movies anywhere and everywhere? Check out the Locker Room Flicks podcast on Apple Podcasts and all podcasting platforms everywhere. You'll love it.